The way you're working is not working. The old school approach of sacrificing your personal life for professional gain has succeeded only in breeding a workplace culture of overwork, disengagement, and burnout. Welcome to the Work Less, Produce More podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Belanger, CEO of ConsciousWorks Consulting and expert in proactive mental health and performance in the workplace. My goal is to teach leaders to consciously build their workplace culture. Whether you're leading five people or 500, the dynamics you set in your workplace matter. We will cover essential skills to live and lead sustainable work, leveraging the latest research on how to work and maybe even more importantly, learning how to unwork. This podcast will help you work sustainably, lean in and enjoy it with the support of an inspired and fulfilled team. While there's no one answer, each episode I will explore with a guest experts, considerations, ideas, and tools you need to create work-life integration that fuels your drive instead of draining your ambition. On today's episode, we're talking to Richard Newman. Richard is the founder of Body Talk. Over the past 22 years, his team has trained over 120,000 business leaders around the world to improve their communication and impact, including one client who gained over $1 billion in new business in just one year using the strategies that Richard teaches. One of the things that fascinates me about Richard and his work that him and his team does is really looking at how communication can help us be more effective, both in our work and our non-work. Let's dive in. Okay, so first and foremost, please introduce yourself and your company. Hi, I'm Richard Newman. I am the CEO and the founder of Body Talk. And uh, Body Talk is a company where it's a team of 20 people where we are teaching advanced communication skills, generally to leaders uh, around the world, but also anything from sort of MBA students all the way up to CEOs uh, to give people body language, storytelling, handling objections, anything that people might need in the modern era of virtual communication skills that help them be thoroughly productive in that way and get messages that are concise, compelling, that cascade and get action done afterwards. That was a beautiful pitch. That's a great elevator pitch. So with this idea of working less and producing more, how does communication fit into all of that? What can we be doing to save time, energy, and effort with our communication? There's so much that can be done here because so much work is poured into creating communication in businesses. So if you think about the average amount of time that somebody in a year might spend creating PowerPoint slides in order to share something at a meeting. And we know this through the work that was reported by Dr. John Medina. He put this in his book, Brain Rules, which is an amazing book. Everyone should go and read. And he talked about this uh, experiment at the University of Washington, where there was 600 people who went to see a lecture. And 300 of them went in and they saw this lecture by a professor who was using bullet points. And then they left. And then the other 300 came in. They saw the same lecture by the same professor. And all he was using was images. And three days later, they tested them to see how much these people had remembered. The people who saw the bullet points and words on the screen, on average, remembered 10% of the information. Just three days later, 90% of it was complete waste of time. The people who had seen the same lectures, the same words that were spoken by the same professor, but they had images on the screen. They remembered 65% of the information three days later. So that's a 550% increase on on the other one, as the statistician uh, once told me. 
So think about this in terms of the amount of hours that people are applying into creating decks and slides ready for a meeting. 90% of that time is for nothing. People complain about, you know, death by PowerPoint because they're going in and they are having this information that's really just targeting the logical part of the mind. And the human mind, we've got lots of different aspects, but the three major aspects we need to be aware of are the survival mind, the emotional mind, and the logical mind. And if you want to be an effective communicator, you need to engage those three areas in that order in order for the brain to really care about it, take it on board and do something useful with it. Whereas most meetings, you you start in the logical mind, you end in the logical mind and you have this cognitive fatigue and you find yourself coming out of there needing three cups of coffee just to be able to stay awake enough for the next death by PowerPoint meeting. And more to this point, like when we've been doing virtual communication, people have talked about having Zoom fatigue or, or screen fatigue. And it's not really screen fatigue, because if you think about it, people can have Zoom meetings all day long. They close down their laptop, exhausted by this screen fatigue. They go in their living room, they turn on the TV, and they're watching Netflix for three hours perfectly happily. So it's not actually screen fatigue. This is about communicating with people, in interacting with people in a way that is completely ineffective. So trying just to give them complete cognitive overload. And I'll take that one stage further, just to show people how important this is. We work at conferences a lot in my team. And so often, this is what we talk to them about, is that hundreds of thousands of dollars could be spent on one conference. And there's six months of preparation put towards it. And there's loads of speeches done by the CEO and then the CFO and all the team leaders. And they do brainstorming. They talk about great ideas that are going to happen. Then they go back to their teams and they try and cascade the messages and nobody's interested. They're just sitting there thinking, okay, I don't see how that applies to me. I don't know why that's important. Okay, you had a nice time at a five-star hotel, but how does that really relate to me and the business? And nothing happens. And a year later, they're at the same conference talking about the same stuff and nothing's actually happened. So if you get your communication right, what it means is that you can be much more efficient in understanding each other, in coming up with new ideas, cascading it through your teams and getting everybody on board. And that's what we did for a big telecommunications company in the UK where they they wanted to make decisions quickly. They wanted to be able to get through their emails as fast as possible. They wanted to take insights and make sure that everybody in the business was able to pivot what they were doing as fast as possible to be cutting edge in the market. And so we shared with them storytelling methods that allowed them to do exactly that. So saving time, getting more done, being more efficient, getting ahead, instead of exhausting themselves with this uh, death by PowerPoint culture we've had for too many years. Because of course we originated with telling stories. That's how we passed information. That's, that's how our brain works. How did we, or why did we pivot to PowerPoint and should we blame the big consulting companies? (laughs) <laughs> Great question. Uh, yeah. So, so initially, if you think about it, if you wanted to pass on messages to the next generation, life and death messages, we didn't get out a PowerPoint. We would sit around a fire and we would tell stories and stories that would be so memorable that everyone in the tribe would take action on them immediately every day and be able to pass them on for many generations. And then a few years back, somebody came up with this lovely piece of software called PowerPoint. And I think the reason that people took this on is it comes partly down to a fear of public speaking, a fear of communication, a fear of being the center of attention. Right. And so what we have these days, we've got these meeting rooms. If you think about the bizarre element of this, you go into a meeting room and what do you have? You have a massive screen right in the middle of the room. 
And then maybe they used to be certainly in rooms, they don't have them so much anymore, like a little podium off to one side. Yes. And so the person who's speaking can essentially hide three quarters of their body behind a wooden box while everybody is looking at this big screen. We tend to see that in virtual communication now where somebody keeps themselves as like a little thumbnail video and the rest of the screen is just a bunch of words and graphs and spreadsheets and all the rest of it. It's the same sort of thing. But part of the reason people are doing that is because they feel uncomfortable with all of the attention coming in their direction. Because when the attention comes in your direction, the tribe is, is looking at you and thinking, are you the kind of person that can be the tribe leader? Do you have the qualities that will engage this tribe? And when we sense that, we sense the separation from the tribe as we step up in front of a room or as all the attention goes on to us. And so there's certain things that we can be using as communication skills to really deserve that attention as the, uh, the tribe leader and make sure that we feel okay with being the center of communication. And thankfully, things are starting to pivot back because for a while we thought, well, that's how communication is done. You just stick up a screen, everybody gets bored, people leave having no idea what happens and that's what business is all about. But then this thing came along called TED Talks where we would see someone stand on a red circle, a red carpet, and for most part, use no slides and they'd get 50 million views of a 20 minute presentation. And people in corporate culture around the world thought, hang on a second, that seems like a better idea. They are engaging us. There are sound bites and ideas that people take away and are using for years afterwards. And all the person did was stood still and spoke and told stories. And so I think that's why people are starting to realize it needs to shift back. You just made me so happy because I'm going back to keynoting in person and I'm terrified because all I've done for two years is stand still. So I used to say, <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands and now I don't know what to do with my legs. But to your yeah. point, it can be very effective communication <laughs> by standing still. Really yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a big mistake actually people make where they think, okay, I want to be a good speaker on stage. I've seen people do this who walk around a lot. So I'm going to walk around a lot. And I learned this years ago. I studied acting for three years at a London acting school. It's the only place in the UK that gets a, a higher employment rate for actors than RADA. Most people have heard of RADA where people went like Kenneth Branagh and other people. Anyway, so when I was there, they would teach you that if you have a line in a script, if you move, you move with a thought. So you're thinking something and therefore you move. You don't just wander around the stage to be interesting. You move with intention. You move with purpose. Now, most of the movement that we see people doing if they're standing up is that they're moving with no intention behind it. They're just moving either because they want to feel better. They've got this nervous energy and they're trying to get yes. rid of it somehow. Yeah. Or they're pacing up and down a bit like watching like a lion at the zoo pace up and down behind the bars. And it just becomes monotonous. And you end up thinking, why is that person pacing up and down? And you, you don't hear what they're saying. So I'll give you a piece of gold I learned a few years back. And if people try this out, they're going to love it. How do you tell stories by walking in one direction or the other? Think about it this way. If you're looking at a graph on a slide and you've got the number zero on one side of the screen and you've got the number 100 on the other side of the screen, where is the 100? Is it on the left or the Right. Right. On the right, if, if there was a January to December on the screen, which side is January? Left. On the left. So people see time. When they're looking towards a screen or looking towards a speaker, they see time. They see the past on their left and they see the future on their right. So if you're telling a story, if you walk to the audience's left, they assume that you're going into the past. 
and you can say, look, last year, this is where we were and this is what we did. Right. And I had this amazing insight. Then you walk to the middle of the stage and you say, this is where we are today. And you're talking about the present. Then you walk to the audience's right and they, they can see you walking into the future. Whether they're aware of it or not, that's subconsciously how the audience is reading time. And so if you do want to move as a speaker, you don't have to. I mean, I've spent most of my life speaking on stage and not really moving my feet very much and just gesturing and facial expressions and tone. But if you move to the right, then people see you walking into the future and it helps it go into their mind. You're visually representing the message far more powerfully than a visual aid or bullet points can ever do. I absolutely love this from a speaker perspective. I'm somebody that I mentioned, I'm a recovering academic. That is bullet point and PowerPoint death for sure. That is what people are comfortable with. It's what they expect, but it's not how we relay information. So I'm learning how to do a better job of that knowledge translation, scientific communication. And I think, again, this is gold. But if we go back to the work less, produce more, how can we make effective meetings? Because that certainly is a massive energy and time suck. There's research to show that that is the number one way that we lose time and energy and effort during our work days. Mm. So how can we meeting better? A few tips for people on meetings. The first place where people go in the wrong direction is if they're preparing to communicate in a meeting, they often they might sit down and think to themselves, okay, what is it that I want to say? And as soon as you've thought that, you're going in the wrong direction because nobody cares about what you want to say. What they care about is what do they need to hear and what order do they need to hear it such that they care from the beginning, they're motivated to listen, and they understand what actions take at the end. So instead of thinking about what I want to say, you should think about how do I need people to feel by the end of this meeting? And when I talk about feelings, this is not like random feelings of joy and skipping through the park after the meeting. This is about what is the real intention of the meeting. If you need people to feel certain by the end of the meeting, that changes your body language, your tone of voice and your words. If you need them to feel uplifted, that's going to change things. Equally, if you need them to feel disappointed, that will change your words, your tone, your body language. So it's the simplest thing to really get on target and get congruent with everything you do with communication. And I say this because I've seen countless people who spent hours preparing information and they'll go in and they're trying to reassure the staff that everything's okay after the pandemic and they're growing again. And they go in and they're nervous. And they share the slide and they say, hi, everyone, uh, just to reassure you, everything's fine. And uh, we're having a good month at the moment and the numbers are going up and uh, there's nothing to worry about. And everyone's thinking we're going to we're going to lose our jobs this week. Why is this person so worried? And so it's critical as a speaker. You need to prepare. Of course, you need to know what you're saying. But when you go into a meeting, have all of your focus outwards, not inwards. You don't want to be self-conscious as a speaker. You need to be audience conscious. And so you focus completely on them, see them where they are and do whatever you can to move their feelings from where they are to where they need to be by the end of that meeting, representing the feeling of your message. People will be familiar with the phrase that people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And so the next week when someone says, hey, what's that, what was that meeting about with Jim that you went to last week? And they'll say, it was a great meeting. I came out feeling really reassured. 
actually that we're in a good place. They don't really remember all the information, but they do remember how that information made them feel. That's key to then cutting down what you need to do. The second piece that I would say with people is don't plan every word that you're going to say. And for goodness sake, don't read every word that's on every slide. If you want to put things on a slide, great. Just email them to people and say, here's a pre-read. We'll have a conversation in the room. But instead of putting every word down, we encourage people to put down keywords. And keywords are something where you look at the word in your notes and you know what the story is and you tell it with the feeling that you want in that meeting. And that saves you from sort of feeling dry and robotic. Uh, It saves people from having to watch you read your own slides that nobody's ever enjoyed ever. And it gives you permission to have a conversation with the people that you're with. One of the things we're craving in communication right now is connection with the other people around us. We have been craving that for the last couple of years. So we want to feel that this person is connected with me, that they're not going by a script. They could have emailed me. And frankly, these days, if you've got people face-to-face in a meeting, they're thinking, okay, I could have been in the bath. I could have been working from home. I could have been wearing my pajamas today. You need to give me a good reason these days to get shaved, get in a car and go somewhere. So make sure that you're actually connecting with me as a human. So you can do that as a conversation with keywords and feelings that come out at the end. I love that. Like, why am I putting on real pants? Okay. Like, give me something that I'm achieving here. What I like again about this as a recovering academic, nobody's ever gotten that prof review that's like, I loved how they read their slides. It was amazing. I'm so glad I got up at 8 a.m. to watch somebody read something that I could have, like I I can read. That's how I got here. So absolutely getting people excited and that connection piece. So much of what where leadership research is shifting, what we're seeing from um, some big analysis is be more human. We want empathy, we want emotional intelligence, we want good communication skills, we want connection, we want engagement, which has really shifted in the last couple of years of how important that is and how we're developing it now so much virtually, which is fine and can be done. But then when you are in person, the why matters so, so, so much. Now I'm going to ask about you because you're an entrepreneur, as am I. And so we're talking about work less and producing more. You mentioned some personal reasons for why you shift and how you design your work. So I'd love to hear about how you work. I have to say, I've really enjoyed the last couple of years to reflect on the way that I work. Right? Uh, because previous to the, uh, the pandemic, I would get on about 40 to 50 flights per year. I'll be traveling all the way around the world. And I didn't realize it until the pandemic that I'd spent 10 years being jet lagged. Uh, I got (laughs) used to the idea of, hey, I can sleep in my own bed. This feels good. This is what being awake feels like. Uh, So I've enjoyed that. And also I have two kids who are age 10 and seven. So it's been bliss to be able to spend more time with them. Currently, I'm working as I think, you know, many people would be where a lot of my work is, is spent in a virtual office. I've made sure that I decked out this space here so that it's professional enough that I can work with clients from all over the world. And many clients are working in the way that I like, which is if it needs to be an in-person event, if it is a serious shift that needs to happen in behavior, then we'll go and do it face-to-face. But for other pieces that are inspiring, that may have hundreds of people involved for a short period of time, we can do these virtually. And other pieces that are important for me in the way that I work is firstly, I'm doing work that I feel 
incredibly passionate about. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to be a business leader, you've got to be doing something that you deeply care about. It's important that the work itself fills you with, with energy. Otherwise, you're going to be relying too much on various different things like snacks and coffee in the morning and alcohol in the evening, just so you can try and get to sleep rather than having the work itself fill you up. And so I feel very blessed to have found work that gives me energy. And, you know, as an example, last week, I was mentioning to you, I was in Pennsylvania, I was running an event there for a couple of hundred leaders of a business with a few of my team, uh, got on a flight on the Thursday night, woke up Friday morning in London, and then Friday started leading a four day event in the UK. And people were saying to me, aren't you tired? Like you, you must be completely exhausted. And I said, no, the work itself fills me up. This is something that I love to do. But having said that, you know, I think one of the pieces we talk to people about in terms of communication, but also in terms of looking after yourself, we talk about this concept of lift. So lift is a way of achieving your goals by lifting others. Now, in order to do that, you have to lift yourself first. So I have a morning routine and I have rituals that I'll do now and again to make sure that I feel lifted. You don't want to be going into an important meeting, negotiation, conflict resolution, depleted, because otherwise you're only going to make the situation worse with that kind of energy. So you need to be able to find ways to lift yourself before you go in and then go in with the intention to lift others. And we've coached people to do this, even with like challenging international negotiations that they're dealing with, where they might come to us saying that this person is trying to drive us into the ground and I can't believe they're treating us this way. And when we've talked to them about this, we've said, when you go into that meeting, how, how do you feel about them? And they say, well, I feel really bad about them. I'm going to do everything I can to try and pull the situation back in our favor. To which I've said, look, as a human to human connection, that person is going to feel the negativity coming across from you, rightly or wrongly in the situation. What if you go into the situation saying, I am going to do whatever I can to lift the other person? Maybe they have had negative behavior in the past, but if you shame them for it or you make them feel guilty for it, or if you go into strongly pushing that point, then the person will feel that you see them as the villain. And then they are more likely to come back with negative energy. Whereas instead, if you go in and get that sense of seeing the greatness within them, see who they were as a child, see who they were growing up. Imagine yourself as a really nobler or inspiring teacher or a mentor, maybe like a grandparent who used to see into the eyes of a child and just see all of the greatness within them. If you go in with that spirit, they're much more likely to raise the bar of what it is they're doing and the interaction they have with you. And if you do that as a leader, then this means that instead of having to be in every situation and controlling everything that's going on, if you lift others, they're gonna be able to get more done. They'll feel more empowered. They'll feel more charged up by you. And so lifting yourself first and then lifting others is a key strategy. I absolutely love this. And this is part of, we've been able to interview some people on conflict management and being as generous as possible with the other person's story or intent. And certainly that empathy piece that we need to all sit with as we deal with people and they're kind of quicker to react versus respond. And, and I think this is incredible for your routines, how you lift yourself. What do you do? My morning routine starts the night before, before I go to bed. So firstly, I get a, a thermos of uh, hot water and lemon juice that I'm going to be having first thing in the morning to make sure I'm really nicely hydrated. And I also get a cold thermos ready with 
a smoothie for the morning that's got all sorts of things. It's got loads of nutrition and it's delicious to have. And so it takes less energy to digest it and I'm getting lots of good stuff. So those are ready to go. So I don't have to do it in the morning. They are there. And then when I wake up in the morning, I aim to work, wake up early and I will stretch and be mindful about the day that is coming up for me while I'm having my hot water. I will then do exercise of some sort. I'm really lucky where I live in the UK. We've got a place called Burnham Beaches just near us, which is 500 acres of woodland where they filmed part of the Harry Potter movies and some of Robin Hood, I think, was filmed there. So it's a beautiful place where I get to go out into nature and get physically moving and going for the day. I feel grateful for everything I have in my life and I aim to envision the future. What do I want it to be? And how will that make the world better? So I've done that first thing. And then I'll have my smoothie. And then I I get ready for the day. I'll say I also do have a cold shower. I highly advocate these. They're fantastic for waking you up, getting the blood flow going. Then during the rest of the day, I'm fortunate when I'm at home, that if I've got a moment where I'm just feeling a bit like the energy is gone, we have this gorgeous small dog who wants to play all day, every day. And so if I think, okay, I just, I need to get playful. I need to get up. I need to get energized. She'll find me rather than me finding her. And then we can just play for a few minutes and that starts to get my energy back. I've got my kids who'll be here after school as well. And I find energy from them. They find energy from me. So getting that sense of connection and playfulness and creativity can be really useful, especially in the afternoon where people start to feel drained and they think, okay, I need to reach for another coffee or another snack bar just to keep me going. So mixing it up, making sure that you're feeling a sense of balance because you're in, if you're in one mode all day long, you're going to reach a state of burnout thinking, I can't do this anymore. And then trying to get yourself back into it the next day. That's amazing. And the cold shower thing, the amount of literature that's behind that in regards to like kicking in that parasympathetic nervous response and able to bring you down into a level of productivity and performance that's incredible. And the nature piece, it's I live in the Rocky Mountains. I can't advocate for that enough. And we, I said it's most underutilized performance enhancer in the world is to get ourselves out in nature as much as possible. I'm going to ask you an odd question. I have two small children that keep needing to be fed and watered all the time. And so morning routines are hard. So if you weren't mm-hmm. able to go out and exercise or you weren't able to have the capacity you do now that your kids are a little older, what would you recommend? What is the one thing or two things that you can do while you are also minding small children? I have two kids. I'm fortunate they're of an age now where they are able to dress themselves yes. and they're able to put food in their mouth without me having to give them every spoonful. So there's a few suggestions that I have on this. So firstly, if you know that they're going to be waking up at six each morning, if you're able to wake up at 5.45, that requires going to bed earlier. But if you can wake up and just give yourself at least five or 10 minutes first thing to settle your mind. The funny thing is people think, well, settle my mind. I've just woken up. What, what do you mean? The brain is racing overnight and particularly REM sleep tends to be more so towards the end of our sleep. And so it's important to just settle the mind at that point and get to a place where you have a moment for you where you can set your intentions for that day and feel hydrated. And so essentially you are lifting yourself before you go to lift others. Occasionally, instead of being able to do that, one of our kids might come in and need a hug before my alarm has even gone off. And so I can just have a nice moment doing that, but then just thinking about intentionally, who am I right now? What am I doing with this day? And one of the really simple things that you can do is to get focused on your values. There's lots of good studies on this. One of them is the Trier Social Stress Test that shows how if you're really focused on what your values are before you go into stressful situations, 
This will mean that you lower your heart rate, your stress levels, and you'll be more likely to be focused on internal validation rather than looking for external validation. And you can just have them next to your bed. You can put them on a post-it note. You can put them on the home screen of your phone. So that when you wake up in the morning and the mind, the mind starts to think, oh, who am I again? And, and what do I do? And oh yeah, I put on these clothes and I have these behaviors and that's the kind of person I am. Before that all takes off and old stories kick in, you can just think, what are my values? And then suddenly that sets the compass for the day saying, this is the kind of person that I am. This is how I move through this day. And if you can do that and set an intention for where you'll be by the end of the day, you know, don't kick yourself if you don't manage to get there. But if you're moving intentionally through the day based on those values, then you're more likely to feel better in yourself and be more productive. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for all of this. I think there's so many insights we can take away. So thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Lisa. Before we wrap up, I want to share a little bit about executive coaching. We work with leaders to build awareness of strengths and opportunities for improvement in relation to business and leadership needs. Totally customizable, our process is four phases, self-reflection, action plan, drive growth, and evaluate impact. Visit our website, ConsciousWorks.com, for more information. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram at Dr. Lisa Boulanger. Also, look for ConsciousWorks on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. For more information about today's guest, visit our podcast page on our website, ConsciousWorks.com. Oh, 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 oh